Well, I wonder, what is the worst piece of relationship advice that you have ever received? Now, we don't really have time to go around the room, unfortunately, today, but over morning tea this morning, you should share the answer to your question. What is the worst piece of relationship advice that you have ever received? We live in a culture that is obsessed with relationships. Uh, Some people are always intent on telling you what they think. There's no shortage of blogs or magazine articles that have been published with advice that ranges from the outright inappropriate to the totally perplexing. And then much more closer to home, I think there is a very special place in the pages of dodgiest relationship advice ever for so-called Christian relationship advice that's often at one end of the extreme, just worldliness dressed up as faithfulness, and at the other end, dodgy theology used to support, frankly, pretty weird practices. It often leaves me wondering, how hard can this be? We already know that when it comes to relationships, the church in Corinth was really good at making a mess of things. Paul's already devoted a large section of his letter, so chapters 5 and 6, what we looked at last week, to implore the Corinthians that they need to flee from sexual immorality. They need to flee from any sexual activity that is outside of that between a husband and a wife. They need to bring their behaviour in line with what the gospel demands. But now, Paul goes from addressing the problematic approach to sex to talking about a positive, godly view of relationships. To those who are married, be it they married to believers or unbelievers, to those who are single, be they engaged or not engaged, to those who are divorced, be they abandoned or otherwise, to those who are widowed. Paul is speaking to everyone in the Corinthian church. And note that this isn't just an interesting thought exercise for Paul. This is a live issue. Paul is writing this in response to questions that have been raised with him from some in the church in Corinth. And so you'll note we see a signal to that in chapter 7, verse 1. For Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. So these are the things that they have asked Paul about. These are the questions. And then in verse 25, again, another hat tip to that when it says now about virgins, uh, that is to those engaged to be married or those unmarried. Paul says, I have no command from the Lord. So he's responding to their questions. Amidst a world of competing ideas, where do you get your relationship advice from? Family? Friends? A blog? Twitter? Oprah? (laughs) Your colleagues? Let's see what the Bible has to say. So I think the Bible has the best relationship advice ever. You can tell me afterwards if you agree or disagree, but I think it's got the best relationship advice ever. And we see three points of that today. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for keeps. Singleness, maybe not. And whatever the circumstance, live lives devoted to the Lord. So first, sex is for marriage. So back to verse 1 of chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with uh, a woman. Paul's quoting them here. 
And if you wonder if that question, uh, which you can read, is if it is, it is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, if that seems kind of weird. Uh, you need to understand that there are a number of issues going on in Corinth. Not only is there likely some sort of famine or disease crisis going on, we get a, a, a reference to that in verse 26, not only is there likely some tension about whether Jesus is returning imminently, we see that in verse 31, but there's also some really weird spiritual ideas going around about the nature of their bodies, that, that our spiritual nature is superior to our physical nature. Not only did that mistaken understanding lead some people, as we saw last week, to think that they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies, that they could engage with sexual immorality, sexual activity outside of the context of marriage, but at the opposite end of the spectrum, some people thought that because matter was lesser, that actually sexual activity should not be pursued at all, as it was viewed as some sort of corruptive or dirty force. They likely even thought, or some even thought, that abstinence from sex and marriage was actually some sort of form or gave them spiritual kudos. Often, that's what people think Christianity teaches about sex, that it's bad, that it's dirty. But what does Paul say in response to the question? Is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? He says, yes. But no, Paul does a quick rephrase and clarification. He says, yes, sex is good in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. So have a look at verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So note that when Paul um, is, is saying that sex and marriage is merely... He's not saying that sex and marriage is merely some sort of way to appease the rampant sexual immorality in Corinth. That's not what he's saying. But he's being countercultural. He's being corrective, saying that sex is a gift to be expressed and enjoyed in marriage. Amidst the Roman culture at the time, the Roman view at the time, they thought that really sex, or many thought that sex and marriage was just for procreation, and that sexual pleasure was found outside of marriage with slaves or prostitutes. Paul says, no, not only is sex good, but it has one context alone, exclusively, between that of a husband and wife. There's no other context. So verse 3. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Note that those two verses, if they are ever separated and quoted apart from each other, it's disastrous. But together, it is beautiful. This is a wonderful and counter-cultural view of sex both then and now. There is a, a beautiful mutuality of what Paul is describing, that they are no longer their own, but belong to one another. This, of course, is not some sort of anti-consent teaching, or the husband or wife should engage in sex unwillingly, but something mutually precious and extraordinary. Sex is not meant to be transactional. It's not a bargaining chip. Sex is not a consumer experience about one person's needs being met over the other, but that within a lifelong union between husband and wife of being other-centred, that they may so give of each other 
in body, mind and spirit, that they serve one another in loving devotion. In the words to the introduction at a wedding service, uh, the words of introductions that really set out the focus and purpose of marriage, there's a phrase right at the beginning that I think always stands out. The phrase is, marriage is a gift from God. And it continues, for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us. One of the very first weddings that I ever did, it was actually for my boss's daughter, so I was fairly nervous. I said, instead of natural instincts and affections, I said natural instincts and infections. (laughs) But whenever I'm sure, whenever people hear that phrase, for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us, I'm sure that when those words are read, some people think, oh, this is a bit embarrassing. What a restrictive view. So often our culture can think, wow, this is a really outdated and archaic view. But the Bible says no. That so precious is this gift, so significant is sex, that it only finds its full and proper expression safely in the context of a public commitment, when a man and woman have made a public commitment in marriage. Paul's being really pastoral. So no, he's not condemning those who've done differently. He's inviting them to bring their lives into line with the gospel now. Paul's also sensitive to times in marriage in which that may not be possible. That's what verse 5 and 6 are all about. There might be health reasons. Things change over the course of a lifetime. But note that as Paul asserts that sex is made only for marriage, that does not mean he has a lower view of those who are single. So look, verse 7. He says, I wish all of you were as I am. Or verse 8, he said, it is good for unmarried and widows to stay unmarried as I do. It's not compulsory for them to marry. Now, he's not saying that singleness is better, but that it is also good. In a world that's really obsessed with sexuality and romantic intimacy, that suggests that if you're not sexually active, then in some way you're denying your identity, single Christians live with a countercultural witness that says, I don't believe that's true. As one author puts it, Single Christians abstain from sex outside the marriage bond, bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Both single and married people who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond point to the same thing. They both deploy their sexuality in ways that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God's passion. Sex is for marriage. Second piece of the best relationship advice ever, marriage is for keeps, singleness maybe not. So first, marriage is for keeps. Now that might seem like a really obvious thing to say, even in our own culture that has rejected the classic Christian definition of marriage as being between a man and a woman, people on the whole still want to retain the intention at least that marriage is lifelong. But in the church in Corinth, amidst crisis, Uh, confusion about when the Lord was going to return, and conversion to Christianity, divorce was common. And people were contemplating sudden changes to their marriages. 
But the take-home advice from Paul is this, stay married. Amidst Greco-Roman world of serial divorce, this was totally countercultural thinking. So if we look from verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul is quoting Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Paul recognises, you'll note, that, that sometimes there will be a case for divorce, possibly in the case of adultery, as was the reference by Jesus, possibly in the case of abandonment, when as Paul points out in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, I think also in the case of abuse. But the point is that the standard for marriage is that it's lifelong. And that divorce, even when it occurs with substantive cause, is always with significant sadness, pain and cost. I've walked that journey with various people over the years and every single one of them would talk about how costly and painful divorce is. That even in the face of seemingly an immovable impasse of the real agony of experiencing the brokenness of marriage and witnessing marriage being torn apart or the deep sadness and grief when both parties don't want to commit to reconciliation. As a church, we need to care for those people. We need to love those people. Sometimes people think the answer is to just give up on the idea that marriage is lifelong. I read one article recently by an author in the States who said, look, most marriages fail, so maybe they should just be all limited to seven years maximum. But that's not the answer. We need to be communities of married and singles in which people can share openly and honestly in their struggles and receive the support they need. In Corinth, uh, people, both believers and unbelievers, were walking away from the marriages, and in some cases, they were dressing it up as being super spiritual. Some of the Christians were wondering if God wanted them to leave their unbelieving spouse. Some of them were even worried that it would be in some way unholy to remain in that marriage. But Paul's answer is super clear. Not only is marriage for keeps, but they're staying in that marriage with the unbelieving spouse is honouring God. So when Paul says in verse 14 that the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband, he is not saying that the unbelieving space spouse is now saved automatically. That's super clear if you just read on <laughs> verse 16 that they stay part in the hope that they would be saved through the witness, the believer to the unbeliever, but that their marriage is a holy union to be honoured. Over the years, I have been so amazed at the faithful witness of brothers and sisters in Christ to their spouse who does not yet believe. And it's always such an incredible point of praise, sometimes after many, many decades of faithful witness when the unbelieving spouse, due to the faithful example of the believing husband or wife, when they come to faith. Paul's point is clear. Marriage is for keeps. But singleness, well, it's not necessarily for keeps. 
Paul covers a lot of territory, but the point is clear. Those who are unmarried may get married, or they may not. So often in our culture, singleness is often viewed as a problem to be solved. But there is not one hint from anything Paul has to say that being single is inferior. Now, to those married here today or joining us online, I'm sure that you would never, ever think of your single brother or, and sister as, as less. But sometimes, by the things that we say, we communicate to those who are single that they are somehow incomplete, inferior, or in some sort of holding pattern. So, with the best of intentions, we can imply that single people are less when we only invite them to dinner when we're trying to pair them up with someone else, when we say to someone, someone's out there for you, or if we say to someone, I'm really not sure why you're not married, or at a wedding we say, you'll be next. It's not helpful. It implies that people can only be satisfied if married, and therefore denies that it's only in God that we can find our ultimate satisfaction. And if you're single, I want to say it's possible to have both too high or too low view of marriage. If you have too low view of marriage, you will be tempted to compromise who you marry and your standards for sex. And I want to say to you, don't. Don't go there. Those relationships, unless married, are not permanent. It could be finished tomorrow by text. You're single until you're married. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard at times. It doesn't mean that if you're single that you won't have a whole bunch of longings, that you won't have a longing to be married or a longing to be a parent. And as Vaughan Roberts so helpfully puts it, he says, people's experience of singleness will differ. They'll differ by age. Being single at 20 and 50 is going to be different. It'll differ by circumstance. Some may have never been married, be divorced or be widowed. And it's also going to differ by experience, whether someone chooses to be single or not. But whatever the situation, no matter what we feel, we can run to God for he can be trusted with all of our deepest needs. And if you have too high of a view of marriage, if you're single, you will forever be treating it as an idol, as a thing that will finally satisfy, when the only one who can truly satisfy is the Lord himself. Just as marriage is meant to point to God's love for the world, your singleness points to the all-encompassing sufficiency of the Lord. So finally, best relationship advice ever, whatever the circumstance, live lives devoted to the Lord. So amidst whatever crisis they were experiencing in Corinth, they wanted or very tempted to throw all the norms out uh, the window. You know, that often happens in a, in a crisis. Uh, COVID hits and all of a sudden no one knows the social etiquette of leaving at least some toilet paper on the shelf in the shops. Some of the Corinthians are wondering, should I make radical changes to my life circumstances now that I believe? 
And Paul says over and over and over again, stay where you were when God called you. Whether you're slave or free, circumcised or not, married or single, engaged or not, he says you're missing the point. The point is that, verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Some people thought that with the crisis that they shouldn't get married. Some people who are engaged thought, well, maybe it's more spiritual if I have a really protracted engagement. But Paul's point, of course, is not that single people uh, should be married or unmarried, but that our whole lives are responsible to God. Paul says, verses 34 and 35, whether married or unmarried, the goal is the same, live in undivided devotion to the Lord. Hear what Paul is saying. This world in its present form is passing away. And on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a great wedding. The Bible speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom. The church is his bride. So whether you're single or married today, the goal remains the same. To orientate our whole lives in devotion to the only one who truly satisfies. That's what marriage is meant to demonstrate. That's what singleness is meant to demonstrate. Whether marriage or singleness are a gift is dictated by how you use it. Our lives point to the wedding that is yet to come. Married, live in devotion to the Lord. Single, live in devotion to the Lord. Divorced, live in devotion to the Lord. Widowed, live in devotion to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your great kindness you have given us so many gifts. Lord, we especially thank you for each and every person in the life of our community. And we thank you for the circumstances in which we're placed, that you would help us, Lord, in the power of your spirit, that we would live lives in devotion to the Lord. Especially pray for people today, Lord, where the circumstances are challenging for whatever reason, that in and through that, that they might know your comfort and your peace, that they might know an ultimate satisfaction that comes from you and from you alone. We pray that we would be a community that supports one another, our brother and sister in Christ, that we would love people, that we would encourage them, that we would encourage one another, that we would always direct our hearts and our lives to you in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.